Welcome to episode 36 of the Creative Strings podcast. I am going to share with you how to be confident playing in new styles of music. It's going to include my 11-point checklist along with some important recommendations for how to implement it. So the checklist is going to give you a few things. How to know when and what to play. How to avoid writer's block. How to avoid getting in a rut when you find yourself always repeating the same few ideas. How to make the other musicians you work with feel really comfortable and always want to call you back. Hello and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. I'm drawing from what I consider to be really my premium tips, and these are the types of things that members of the Creative Strings Academy can get access to, and you can get a free trial of the Academy. If you like, just go to christianhouse.com. I even offer a free introductory private lesson. These are also some of the things that people get when they come to the Creative Strings Workshop. It's not just an event. It's the event for people in the string playing world. I want to thank our sponsors that support our school visits, our camps, the podcast, and other curriculum that we create. They are Electric Violin Shop, which, as you should know, is the place for everything electric strings. Go to electricviolinshop.com. Their phone number is right there. Give them a call during business hours. They'll answer all your questions. They're on top of it all. And also, Yamaha. Of course, I play their electric violins, but they also make electric cellos, violas, basses, and they also make incredible acoustic string instruments. If you look for Support Ed online, that is Yamaha's quarterly free magazine for music educators. Also, if you love this podcast, make sure to check out Rockstar Violinist. Rockstar Violinist is the podcast made by our friends at Electric Violin Shop. Okay, how can you successfully collaborate with musicians in a context that's unfamiliar to you? Maybe you're going to play with bluegrass musicians or old-time music or Celtic, Irish music, right? Maybe you're going to collaborate with a singer-songwriter at an open mic. Maybe you want to go to a jam session and collaborate. Maybe you're going to join a worship band at a church and you need to be able to read off of a lead sheet or follow chord symbols. These are all kinds of situations where you're going to feel a little bit lost. I'm going to give you a checklist and a bunch of ways that you can feel confident and know that you are doing a good job as far as the music is concerned and that you're making an impression that's favorable so that the people in that situation with you are going to want to work with you more in the future. And so before I tell you exactly how to do this, I think it's really worth talking about why it's so important to get involved with these types of collaborations in the first place. I would say that collaborations and or mentorships with other musicians 
in styles that might be unfamiliar to you, these are probably the single most important things that are going to help you to grow beyond the limits of your classical training. I'm a super advocate for classical music. I love classical music. I also acknowledge that there are limits from it. The single best way to grow into the musician you want to be beyond those limits is through the right collaborations and mentorships. In my own experience, I played with Les Paul for 12 years. That was in some ways, it was one of the most rewarding experiences in my career. What prepared me to be able to play with Les Paul, what prepared me to be able to teach at Berkeley was the collaborations with artists outside of my classical background long before those huge opportunities. These were the things that were more influential in my musical development. They were the things that gave me the confidence and the skill set to become a more creative musician. So some of these included, for example, in my high school years, working with a rock band. In my college years, working with a blues singer and a fusion guitarist. And then in my late 20s and in my early 30s, I learned from jazz musicians, flamenco musicians in Spain, Appalachian fiddlers in Tennessee, Cuban musicians in New York City. And in every one of these cases, when I first started, I was clueless. I had no idea what I was doing. So I just accepted the fact that it was uncomfortable. And I tried to open myself to learn things from these musicians who had experienced music in a way which I had not experienced music. All of these collaborators were also mentors, giving me access to new language and new skills. And the place where that happened was when we were jamming, when we were rehearsing, we were performing music and then talking about the music. Bottom line is that you have to put yourself into situations with other musicians where you can share the music and where you can develop these skills. And in fact, that's why I designed the Creative Strings Workshop the way that I did, where you get to work with artist band leaders, with living composers, and play their music in rehearsal and then go out and do gigs. That's what makes our annual event so special in Columbus, Ohio, the first week of July. We purposefully create this safe space for this to happen. Whereas <laughs> in a lot of situations, when I originally experienced these collaborations, it wasn't always the safest space for me. <laughs> you know, there were certainly times that I was uncomfortable. I felt embarrassed. I felt awkward. It was difficult to be the odd man out. And I didn't even know the mistakes that I was making and the offenses that I was causing. Of course, sometimes I learned the hard way. But again, that's why I'm going to give you all these tips. So the first step is to, is to really have the right mindset. And that's to accept that you don't know what you don't know. I mean, if you've never played Latin music or Appalachian music or rock music or free jazz, you've got to start by just accepting that even though you might be an expert at some area of music, maybe it's classical music, maybe it's teaching, you don't know anything about what you're about to get into. And things are different. Realizing this and accepting it is going to save you a lot of stress. It's going to save misunderstandings and frustration. And once you realize this, you're going to act differently. The way you act and the way you think and feel about it is going to make all the difference in that initial collaboration and the impression that you make. I made the mistake of assuming that since I was an expert classical musician, that I was an expert all around musician. So therefore, I sometimes came across as arrogant or possibly even condescending. I learned, and I want you to understand that the proper attitude to show is an attitude of respect. And that doesn't mean you, you have to show up like a walking apology either. You can feel confident about the abilities you have. But when we show respect to other musicians by acknowledging that we don't know what we don't know about the music that they are experts at, then we attract respect and this fosters a healthy spirit of collaboration. By letting the other musicians ask for what they want in whatever musical situation, everyone wins. 
and the music wins especially in other words if something that we've done before in classical music it might work in classical music but it doesn't mean it's going to work everywhere else like vibrato or rubato or <laughs> certain articulations sometimes we make the mistake of pretending that we know what's going on or we might play a lot of fancy stuff or fast off to show off our tone or our vibrato or our chops or we just fail to notice or ask how the other musicians are reacting to what we're doing and this usually backfires musicians will all always appreciate you when you give them permission to ask you for what they want. It also sets me up to be more impressive to them when they hear how quickly I can give them what they want once they give me clear instructions. And it makes it easier for them to give me those instructions. And I find that this is really applicable in so many social encounters, right? If you think about it, it's like any social encounter in which we go into a group of people which we have little familiarity with whatever history they might have, people who share something which we're not accustomed to sharing. Now, after taking a lot of hard knocks, <laughs> I finally figured a lot of this out. And ultimately, I learned to make it work with musicians in all kinds of settings. This is more important than practicing licks because you've got to be able to find a way to get along with other musicians. And even better, to begin to truly appreciate and understand what they do. Some funny stories I've got about this. One time, I was in a small town in China, and uh, it was a band that was meeting me there. And so my drummer showed up with a water jug. And it turns out that that was his, that was his drum kit. I remember a time when I was working with a string quartet and we were collaborating together with a hip hop group in Brooklyn. And that session almost went really south. But using these techniques, we were able to, to make something work. Played a four hour gig with a band from India with no sheet music while I was prominently displayed on one of those monster TV screens. So these are just some examples of overcoming that chasm of translation between disparate musical paradigms. And now I'm gonna give you my simple yet magical checklist to better navigate, anticipate, and avoid conflicts to optimize the chances of musical success when collaborating with musicians who think differently from classical players. And you can do this without mastering jazz theory and improvisation, although some of these things are going to tie a little bit into some theoretical stuff. So first of all, let me dispel the misconception that improvisational music is always about doing whatever you want. There are times and places for doing whatever you want, but when you're called upon to support someone else's music and play a role in their ensemble, you need to be mindful of many parameters. The first of which is to do no harm. And just because it involves improvisation, this doesn't change what makes music good or bad. It's just like if you're playing Bach and Brahms, you want to do what makes the music feel right. Now second, this list may seem like it puts you in a box, like taking the magic out of the creative process. As counterintuitive as it may seem, placing restraints upon yourself is one of the absolute best things you can do to promote your own creativity. Part of your role in a band is to be an improvising soloist, but a bigger part is really to think like an arranger. And that means composing your part. Your part in the song will take on various shapes, from textural colors to rhythmic accentuations to harmony pads to a feature or a solo. If you think like an arranger, you can drag and drop these types of ideas into just about any song for any band in any style, adding value to the music, and they'll call you back again and again. So first, I'm gonna give you the musical checklist, what to do or not do every minute when you're collaborating with a band. Then I'll give you a list of specific interpersonal suggestions related to my preamble that are just as critical to your success. So number one, 
to lay out. Laying out is when you do not play. <laughs> this is literally the most important thing. It's far better to have someone asking you to play more than feeling the passive aggressive energy of someone who's trying to find a way to give you a subtle hint to play less. Of course, there are exceptions to this depending on the scenario. A fiddle player might play 80% of the time in a bluegrass band, for example. Now you are probably gonna feel uncomfortable laying out. And when laying out, you can listen and look around the band, sway or tap your feet to the music or whatever you want. But I recommend, obviously, that you try to tune into the music. Over time, you're gonna get more comfortable laying out. And here's a case in point. In my own jazz quartet, my own band accompanied often by drums, bass, and piano, I would say I lay out at least 50% of the time. Some songs may require you to play all the time, but others you may lay out 25%, 50%, or 75% of the time. And you should think about this before you decide what to play on a particular song with a band. If it's a singer-songwriter or a rock band, often you can play on an intro and then lay out on the first verse, for example, entering on the second verse, or even waiting to enter until after two verses and a chorus have gone by. This contributes to the longer arc of the song, giving it a lift to keep the energy of the song over multiple verses. In a way, when you're adding your part, you're thinking like an architect. You think about the longer form. And so just by restraining yourself from playing, this is like an important aspect of being an arranger and of adding something to the music. All right, so number two, fills. I guess I would describe a fill as like a short melodic idea that happens in the spaces when a singer is not singing or when a melody instrument is not playing a melody. And there are two common ways to organize fills. You could, for example, take all the fills throughout one verse of a song, or you could go back and forth where you play a fill after one phrase, and then someone else in the band plays a fill after another phrase. And here are some tricks you can try, by the way, when practicing to make your fills sound more convincing. Try clapping the rhythm of your fill before adding notes. Non-specific rhythm is the, the death of many an ill-fated fill. <laughs> Instead of thinking about the notes you're gonna play, think about the rhythms. Oh wait, here's a fill. Not in tune, but I'm gonna use it anyway. Let's say that it's a waltz. One, two, three, one, two. So I'll think of a rhythm. So that's my rhythm. So. Adding the notes to that rhythm was, was a lot easier. Or here's another one. One, two, three. Has so much clarity after you think of the rhythm first. Here's another thing that you can try to make a fill. Listen to the words and then respond musically based on what those words mean to you. Respond to the melody line of the singer. Play something like or unlike the singer's melody. Another idea is to respond to the other fills. So if you listen to the fills played by other members of the band, and then you could do something that's like their fill or unlike their fill. And finally, you could outline a simple melodic shape using chord tones, which brings me to number three, long tones, mostly chord tones, also known as pads. A pad is one of the easiest things to do if you know the harmony or if you're able to hear the harmony, i.e. the chord tones. The safest way to play a pad is to play 
voice-led chord tones following the harmonic rhythm playing on the downbeat of each chord. And being able to voice lead chord tones, all that means is that if you have, let's say a D chord, and then you have a, a C chord. So you can move the smallest distance between chord tones. So it's easy going down, but what if you wanted to go up? This is a D chord. This is a C chord. This is a D chord. Not playing in tune here, this violin's not And here's a C chord again. C, D, C, D, C. So that's voice leading. It's being able to move the smallest distance between a chord tone in one chord to a chord tone in the next chord. And you don't wanna just be able to do that between D and C, but you'd also wanna be able to do it between D and A, D and G, D and G minor. And I've got a whole list of recommended pairs to practice until you can memorize them and just kind of know them like the back of your hand. And this is what creative musicians, musicians that have studied harmony a lot, this is one of the key abilities that they have is the ability to, to voice lead chord tones in various harmonic progressions. This is one of the biggest things that holds back classical musicians is the fact that they haven't studied this. They were never taught it. It's not their fault. They just never learned it. If you don't have the voice leading internalized between chord tones from different chords, the easiest way to deal with this is by creating a diagram that I call a chord stack. It contains all the notes in the triad stacked everywhere that they occur in first position on your instrument. And again, this is something that I give away in the uh, Easy Tonal Improvisation course and in Creative Strings Academy. And you can, you can get a bunch of this stuff for free at my website. Now, pads can gradually be embellished to include playing multiple chord tones and or joining the chord tones with short melodic motions through passing tones. I recommend that if you plan to play double stops on violin, viola, or cello, use extreme caution and make sure you can hear yourself very clearly on stage. If it's hard to hear yourself in the monitor during a given performance, then bail. Just go with single notes. At least that would be my approach. Four is a unison melodic figure. And that's, that's simple. That's what we know how to do as classical musicians. Copy the melodic figure and play in unison. So often there'll be a hook or a melodic figure that other members of the band are playing. And sometimes it will be a center point during that moment. Other times it may be more of an accompanimental figure. If it's the centerpiece, chances are you can either double the line or harmonize the line. If it's an accompanimental part, played by the guitar or bass, you may want to ask whether they'd like you to double it. Or if you don't want to ask, then just play it and then watch them. Observe their body language or their facial expressions to see if they like it or not. Usually people will let you know. They'll give you a nod if they like it, or they'll just kind of get tense if they don't want you to do it. The fifth thing is harmonize the figure. Instead of playing a unison melodic figure, play a harmony to the melodic figure. Number six is to create rhythmic textures. And I will just say about rhythmic textures that it's very context dependent. For example, I don't think that you should be chopping, doing a bunch of rhythm stuff that's just percussive without notes, unless there's not a drummer. If there's a drummer playing, just let the drummer handle the percussive aspects. Number seven is to double a vocal melody. And again, I would say be really sensitive about when you double a vocal melody because of a vocalist may not want you to do that, but there may be some cases where you could do that. Number eight, harmonize a vocal melody. Again, I wouldn't want to do this all the time, but there could be some times. And again, you kind of want to try it, see if the vocalist likes it or if the band likes it. Be sensitive to see if it's something that goes over well or not. Number nine, play colors or effects. 
You could use various extended techniques, whether it's harmonics, trills, slides, and you could also augment the colors and effects using effects pedals, such as delay, flanger, wah-wah, distortion, or combining those things together. A great combination is distortion, wah-wah, and delay all at the same time. Number 10, on occasion you may be asked to double the guitar or double the bass or double the horns or harmonize with the horn parts or the background vocals. And number 11, take a solo. Generally, I would say check with a band leader to be clear on when the solo is, if you have a solo, don't expect to have a solo, but if you do have a solo, then make sure you know when it's supposed to happen and how long it should be. And that is my 11 point checklist. Basically all the things that I can think of that you're gonna be doing at any given time in a band. I'll go over them again really quickly. It's layout, play a fill, play pads, play a unison melodic figure, harmonize a melodic figure, play rhythmic textures, double a vocal melody, harmonize a vocal melody, play colors or effects double the guitar or double the bass, double the horns, the background vocals, or harmonize any of those. And number 11 is take a solo. If you write out this list and you refer to it in any situation where you're with another band, I believe that this is gonna enable you to have better experience. It gives you clear parameters within which you can be really creative and feel more confident. What I'm gonna give you now is just as critical, if not more critical, and that has to do with how to communicate with musicians from different musical worlds. One of the biggest issues in these situations has to do with translating between the language a classical musician speaks to the language another musician speaks. You should not expect a band leader to speak your language. They're not gonna necessarily hand you sheet music and they're not gonna say things like play detache or you know, there's a rubato in measure 35. You know, it's not gonna be like orchestra class or string quartet. And remember that they make perfect sense to the musicians who speak their language. You are the outsider. If you're not prepared to speak their language, then these are some key questions that you should ask. For example, should I lay out in the first verse? Can I play two different examples over this section of the song and will you tell me which one you prefer? Would you like me to play high like this or low like this or fast like this and slow like this or dense like this or sparse like this? So you're kind of giving them words and giving them examples so that you're making it easy for them to tell you what they like and what they want so that you can understand it. Whenever you can, demonstrate a part. Do you like this part? Is this good? Or do you like this instead? Make it easy for musicians to say yes or no so that there's no gray area. Do they like this or do they like that? The more you can discern what the musicians in any context are looking for, the more you will be seen as someone easy to work with. You wanna watch for visual cues from the band. You wanna watch body language. You wanna watch facial expressions. If you're looking for this, you will see whether people like things. If they don't like something, if people show like a lot of tension, you can ask them, is this okay what I'm doing right here? Do you have any suggestions for what I can play in this section? Would you like for me to lay out here? You need to prompt feedback by saying things like, how do you like the part I came up with for the bridge? Is it too busy? Would you like to hear it played down lower on the instrument? Would you like to hear what it sounds like if I harmonize the riff the guitar player plays during the bridge? And again, these questions are all going back to my checklist. Is the chopping pattern I'm playing working or should I try a different type of groove? Do you like this or that better? If you 
Keep the checklist handy, and if you follow the guidelines around communication, you are going to maximize success. You are going to make a great impression. People are going to want to work with you. They're going to feel respected. They're going to feel appreciated. They're going to feel like you appreciate and respect their music. They're going to want to call you and refer you again and again, and you are going to get better, and you're going to learn more and feel more confident. I wish I would have known this. 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And I hope that you're going to find this helpful. And please let me know. Now, as I said, you know, this is a big part of the reason that I designed Creative Strings Workshop, an incredible five to six day event that happens every summer in Columbus, Ohio during the week of July 4th. And we've been doing it for 18 years now. One of the critical aspects of it is this aspect of collaboration. We have many artist band leaders that come there just for the sole purpose of giving you the chance to rehearse, to talk about the music, to learn from musicians who come from outside of classical background, a wide diverse array. Appalachian music, there's R&B, singer-songwriter, jazz from early to modern, so many different types of music. And I don't even want to pigeonhole a lot of the music because these are such distinctive and personal artists that you get a chance to learn from. And it was those types of collaborations that I had with artists that I gleaned things from. Those are the things that really shaped my skill set. They shaped my confidence. They allowed me to have the experiences and be prepared for the experiences that I've had in my career and, and to be able to, to have a, a career that I enjoy and to feel creatively expressed. So this is one of the key reasons that I think makes Creative Strings Workshop so special. I really want to encourage you to come. It's an amazing event, whether you are a classical player, whether you've never done any improvisation, if you're a Suzuki teacher, a violin professor, a school orchestra teacher, if you're an amateur, an adult beginner, we've had all of these types of people have come from age literally 14, even younger, to people who are retired in their 70s. We've had freelance classical players come from Melbourne, Tokyo, London, Paris, Chicago, New York City, Los Angeles. We've had lots of orchestral teachers, Suzuki teachers who take material back and share it with their students. We've had so many attendees who started coming when they were teenagers and are now many of the brightest stars out there doing just amazing things. And people come when they're in college as well. We've had preformed string quartets come to work with us during the summer. So I'm really committed to spreading this and getting it out there. And I want you to come to Creative Strings Workshop every summer in Columbus. You should come this summer, the week of July 4th. If you can't make it to Columbus, we have some other workshops as well. And we have a special workshop in Asheville, which is very limited in size. And it's just for folks who want to study with me for five days. Please hit me up on email, chris at christianhouse.com or go to the website, christianhouse.com forward slash education. And you can learn about the workshops. You can also learn about Creative Strings Academy, which is a chance to work online, get a free lesson with me during special promotions. I want to thank our sponsors once again, Yamaha and Electric Violin Shop. And again, if you like this podcast, you should check out Electric Violin Shop's podcast. It's called Rockstar Violinist. Thanks so much for tuning into this special episode. Please share it. Leave a review. Make sure you're subscribed to the Creative Strings podcast wherever you listen. See you next time.